That was beautiful. Well, good morning. This morning, Travis is enjoying a well-earned vacation, so I have the privilege of bringing the message to you. If we haven't met, my name is Kristen Prasad. I am minister to kids and families. And I want to take this opportunity to welcome those of you in the room and also those of us who are joining us online as well as by TV. Several weeks ago, when I was thinking about a topic to share uh, with you this morning, I took a look at the preaching schedule to see uh, what was available. And if you have joined us for the last few weeks, you know that Travis has been in the middle of a series uh, on the parables of Jesus. And so I looked at what he was already planning to cover and what was left, and I landed on a parable that is commonly known as the workers in the vineyard. You heard Jamie read it a few minutes ago. And I chose this parable because it is my least favorite. <laughs> so frankly, I've always uh, found this parable to be a little threatening because I identify far too well with the so-called bad guys in the parable and I find the conclusion a little bit hard to stomach. So I figured that God probably had something that he was trying to teach me and then maybe I could share some of that with you this morning. And I can genuinely say that on this side of the journey, I have a new appreciation for this parable. And it might even be my new favorite, so maybe you'll feel the same by the time we get to the end. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. The parable is verses 1 through 16. And as I said, you've heard this uh, from Jamie already, but while you're turning there, let me uh, tell you a little bit about kids in general, because that's supposed to be my area of expertise, and about my kids in particular. I don't really know how kids pick it up, but it seems like every kid, as you heard Shelley say this morning, every kid from a really early age learns to use the phrase, that's not fair. It can be applied to any number of situations. Uh, it can be that their bedtime is 30 minutes earlier than a sibling's, and that, of course, is not fair. Or maybe you'd plan to take them to the pool and something came up and you can't go today and that too is not fair. Or maybe somebody else got to pick what they watch on TV or somebody got a bigger scoop of ice cream or got to play with a toy longer and to listen to young children tell their tales of woe. Life is one never ending series of unfair situations. And if you're a parent or a grandparent, you have probably sometimes responded to these comments by saying something like, too bad, life's not fair. The sooner you learn that, the better off you will be. And while that may be true, it's not usually very helpful in that situation. When our kids were young, I was determined to eradicate this phrase from the, their vocabulary. It drove me crazy. Our kids got a small allowance every week that uh, grew as they got older so that they could learn how to manage money. But the thing was, if they uttered those evil words, life's not fair or that's not fair, their allowance for the week was gone. And see how fair that feels. <laughs> and along with their punishment came the explanation that they heard more than once, you're right, life's not fair. And if it was, you would probably live in a mud hut and you would have four siblings who had to share your room with you. 
Now, I don't know if that's really the, the median situation on our planet or if that was politically correct, but the kids got the point that life is not fair, and if it was, they would be worse off than they currently are. Their lives were better than fair. In our parable, I want to just read a few of the verses as we get started to refresh us. So if you would look at verse 9. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those who came who, when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. That these who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. Now, I have to say that for all my insistence with my kids that fairness is not something that we should seek, I have a pretty overdeveloped sense of fairness myself. Have you ever taken a Myers-Briggs personality test? I've taken it a few times, and although it changes a little bit each time, that last letter never changes. I am 100% J, which means that I have really strong opinions about the way things should be. Raj, don't nod along. You don't have to agree with that. <laughs> um, here's how one website describes this personality type. It says, they live in a world of clear, verifiable facts. They can earn a reputation for inflexibility and on and on. It's really not a very flattering description. So here's what this looks like when I'm driving. My husband, Raj, says, why don't you get in the turn lane? And I say, because I'm not at the part with the dotted line yet. And he says, you don't actually have to wait for that. You know, it's okay. Other people do it. And I say, well, they shouldn't. <laughs> it's possible that I carry this a little bit too far. And that's why this parable bugs me so much. Because when the landowner went to the marketplace to hire workers, he told the first group he would pay them a denarius which was the going rate for a day's labor at the time. And to the subsequent hires, he promised to pay what was right. So it's pretty simple math, right? It's a 12-hour workday, 6 a.m., 6 p.m., one-twelfth of a denarius per hour. So the guy who gets hired at 9 a.m., three-quarters of a denarius. Noon, half a denarius, and so on. You can figure it out. And that would be fair. But at the end of the day, the foreman takes the folks who had started last, and he pays them first, and then he gives everyone a full day's wage. Everyone gets a denarius. And not surprisingly, the people who were hired first say, essentially, like every kid we know, that's not fair. Isn't it funny how the notion of fair never really occurs to us until we put our situation next to somebody else's situation? I mean, imagine that the first ones hired were the only ones hired all day, and at the end of the day, they went and they got paid and they got their denarius, and they would feel like they had been treated fairly. They had earned a fair day's wage, and everything would have been good. It's only when others receive the same benefit for less work that life is no longer fair. Why is that? What is fair, really? Think of this. Imagine I had 3,000 calories worth of food and I had an adult and a child to feed for the day. 
fare could look like dividing it in half and giving each one 1,500 calories, right? But is that really fair? Because the adult needs more calories. So I could give the adult two-thirds and the child one-third. And you see how this notion of fair, it starts to get a little confusing because it's all seen in relative terms. But the landowner doesn't see it that way. He says to the person who complains, he says, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? So when I, like the people who worked all day, say that something is unfair, what I really mean, if I'm being brutally honest, is that I did not come out on top in this situation. And if I had, then you wouldn't have heard any complaints and you probably wouldn't hear much gratitude either. So in this parable, Jesus revealed to us three radical ideas. And the first one is that fair isn't the point. We have enough experience with God's economy, with the way Jesus flipped things on their head to know that it's really not about equal parts. It's not about equal experiences, equal gifting. What it is about is a Hebrew word, mishpat. In the Old Testament, that Hebrew word is translated as justice. And there's an important difference between fairness and justice that we're gonna talk about. So mishpat can refer to retributive justice. So when you do something wrong to someone else, then it's about making, making that situation right. You make it up to the person you wronged. But more often when mishpat occurs in scripture, it is paired with the word righteousness. So here are some examples from the Old Testament. Listen for those two words. Jeremiah 9.24, I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. Jeremiah 22.3, thus says the Lord, bring about justice and righteousness. Rescue the disadvantaged and don't tolerate oppression or violence against the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. If you've ever watched the Bible Project videos, they're a great way to gain a deeper understanding of scripture, and they have a particularly good one about this topic of justice. And this is how they describe this kind of justice. Humans are made in the image of God, and so all humans are equal before God and have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness no matter who you are. Justice paired with righteousness involves proactively making things right. In the Bible, this pairing is restorative justice, working to return things to the way that God intended them to be. So think about the Garden of Eden, humankind in perfect communion with one another and with God. Or think about it this way. Imagine that you have two block towers with individuals standing on top. Restorative justice means that those on a higher level reach down to pull up the ones who are on that lower stack. Now fairness would mean give everybody a block and put them up a little bit higher, but that's not really it. Justice raises the lower tower until the two stand on common ground. Sometimes when we read something over and over and become familiar with a passage of scripture, we get ideas that might be wrong ingrained in our heads. And so I had one of those wrong ideas about this parable. I read it and I assumed that the people who'd been waiting all day to be hired, the people who were last hired, that they were lazy 
Maybe they hadn't shown up until later, they were lazy, or that they didn't try as hard. Have you ever had a thought like that about someone else? Where you jump to the conclusion and you make assumptions about them instead of asking questions until you figure out what actually happened? Maybe you see someone drive up to a food bank in a really nice car, and your first thought is not very generous. It is, well, if they hadn't spent so much money on the car, they could afford some food. But did you ever think that maybe someone gifted them that car? One uh, recently, I had a situation that pleasantly surprised me. Uh, my son Tiernan and I were driving back from Virginia after his graduation. And um, so you know that the rules of the road are important to me, at least for other people to adhere to. And um, we were driving down the highway and a car flew by us in a blur. And Tiernan said, Maybe there's a pregnant woman inside. And I had to smile to myself because that is something that he had heard me saying years ago in order to remind myself not to make assumptions and be judgmental. Maybe there's more to the story and it's not just someone behaving recklessly or entitled. Maybe there's a woman in the car who is about to have a baby and that is why they are driving so fast. So these workers who are hanging out in the marketplace, every time the landowner returned, what if they'd been waiting since early in the morning and they simply weren't the ones chosen first? Don't they have as much right to earn a wage for their family? Or perhaps they arrived late because they had a sick family member to attend to before they could leave for work. Or maybe a sandal strap broke that morning and they couldn't get there as quickly. We tend to jump to conclusions based on limited information. We make assumptions. We think that we know everything about everyone, and so we just look at a situation and we say, that's not fair. In our parable, the landowner kept returning to those in need of work. And then he practiced restorative justice, allowing each participant to end up with a full day's wage, no matter their starting point. That's fair to the 6 a.m.ers. And it's more than fair to the 5 p.m.ers, because fair isn't the point. The second thing that Jesus revealed in this parable is that it's God's prerogative to be generous. In a lot of our English translations of the Bible, this parable is titled, The Workers in the Vineyard. But the first sentence in Matthew 20 says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. It's not really about the workers. A better title would be The Generous Landowner. And before I really began to study this passage, this is how I had always interpreted it. Something like, so there are some people who follow Jesus for their whole lives, and when they die, they get to go to heaven. And there are some people who have deathbed conversions, and when they die, they get to go to heaven. And that is colossally unfair, but I shouldn't begrudge them that. And, you know, if I really think about it, I may even go so far as to admit that I, as a six-year-old convert, got to know Jesus my whole life, and I had the benefit of that, and I feel a little bit smug. And as I've said, I really totally missed the point of this parable, because like I told my kids, if life was fair, you'd be far worse off than you currently are. I'd be worse off than I currently am. And this is what the equation looks like. The equation for fair is, my sin equals my death. I have chosen to disobey my creator, and the consequence is death. It's eternal separation from him. But because it's God's prerogative to be generous, 
This is what the equation for justice looks like. My sin plus Jesus' death equals my life. Do you see? God is like that generous landowner, and he will never give us less good than we deserve, but he actually wants to give us so much more than we could ever, ever possibly earn. You and I could never work hard enough to earn salvation. And this is why I've never liked this parable, because I thought that I was the 6 a.m. worker, and come to find out, I'm the 5 p.m.er. And the distance between what I have earned and what God has given me is vast. This generosity and the plan to give us better than what we deserve has been around since the very beginning. It was always God's way. Listen to this pairing of justice and righteousness that uh, appear in the prophet Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 11. After he, referring to Jesus, has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. So suddenly my reaction is different because I've recontextualized. I'm no longer in a position to be indignant because others got the same as me. As a 5 p.m.er, I have to be overwhelmed with gratitude that I am the recipient of extravagant generosity. This pairing of justice and righteousness appears again in the description of God's ultimate act of extravagant generosity. Romans 5.18 says, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification in life for all people. The focus of the parable is not the workers, but the generosity of the landowner, because it is God's prerogative to be generous. Generosity, I'm sorry, gratitude for God's generosity is great, but I don't think Jesus wanted us to stop there. Sometimes it's helpful to take a step back from a passage in scripture and look at the context to understand it even better. So immediately before this parable, we actually find the story that many of us are familiar with of a rich young man. This man comes to Jesus and he says to him, what must I do to gain eternal life? So this young man, he has kept all the commandments. He's worked in the vineyard all day. He's a 6 a.m.er all the way. But he walked away from Jesus sad because Jesus asked him to do something that he couldn't do. He asked him to sell his possessions and give to the poor, but the man couldn't be that radically generous. Jesus was, in essence, asking him to practice radical generosity, restorative justice, to reach out a hand to those who have less, leveling the playing field, standing on common ground, and the man couldn't do it. So here's my question. Can I? Can you? The third thing that Jesus revealed in this parable is that we too must be generous. The recipients of grace must extend grace. If we've been blessed, then we must in turn bless. In 1 Peter 4.10, Peter wrote, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So I'm not talking about run-of-the-mill charity. There's nothing wrong with charity, it is a good thing. But simple charity looks like reaching out and giving something to someone on a lower level. Radical generosity 
is reaching down and lifting them up with you, and there's a difference. Years ago, my friend Sally uh, had two middle school boys, and she knew of a family in need of some clothes for their boys who were about the same age, and so she said to her boys, go into your closets and find some clothes. And so naturally, the boys found some things that they had outgrown or things that were no longer fashionable, and they brought them to Sally. And Sally looked at them, and she said, go back and get your favorite jeans. Not their access, their favorites. That's what she wanted from them. You know, we're given a choice in life. We can spend our lives eating, drinking, being merry, making the most of what we have here on earth, caring about ourselves and the people we love. But as followers of Jesus, we've actually already made a different choice. And we may need reminders about that choice, but we've already renounced that path. We've already said that we want to be more like Jesus, living our lives not for the personal fulfillment we get right now, but with an eye toward eternity and the greater reward that comes later. So that means that those of us who follow Jesus, we have to uncurl our clenched fists. And we need to set our, aside our assumptions and look around and find where justice is needed. If we are to be the kingdom of heaven, which is like a landowner, we must proactively seek out those in need of something they did not earn. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, beginning in verse 17, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life, which sounds pretty great. So no matter who you are, you have something that someone else doesn't have. Is it a pair of jeans? Is it money? Is it talent? Is it your relationship with God? Is it an in with influential people? Is it self-confidence? Are you willing to share that with others? In our parable, it's not really clear why the landowner keeps going back. I don't think it's because he underestimated what it would take to work in the vineyard that day. He had experience. Instead, I believe it's because he knew that there was need that continued to exist and he had a way to address that need. When we were in college, uh, Raj and I were married with a young child and another on the way, and money was tight, and I used to say all the time, I hate money. And Raj said, that's because you don't have any, which is true. People could and did look at us and think that we were irresponsible. We had made choices that they wouldn't have made. We had different priorities. And they might say that we had brought the struggle upon ourselves, and maybe that was true. But Raj had a professor who approached him one day, and he said, do you need groceries? Which was really kind and really humbling. And after that, a conversation ensued, and the dean of the Commerce School was made aware of our situation and quietly shared that with some people who understood. And then Raj got a letter in the mail inviting him to come to a ceremony to receive a scholarship that would cover the entire last year of his tuition. He hadn't applied for that scholarship. In fact, I don't know that it existed before that moment. 
And to this day, we don't know exactly what happened behind the scenes, but we do know that people who had influence and access to resources saw a need and responded with radical generosity and sought to meet that need. And they did it more than once, because when they found out that the, two, that the scholarship was for an in-state student and we were out of state, they helped Raj become a Virginia resident so that he could make the most of it. They didn't have to do any of this. They could have made their assumptions and walked away. They could have labeled us as undeserving, or they could have turned away and let somebody else deal with it. But they didn't. They went out of their way to give us more than we had earned, and it made all the difference to us. The landowner in our parable could have gone out at 6 a.m. and hired his workers and felt good about himself, but he didn't. He operated out of a mindset of abundance rather than scarcity, and he went back over and over again, and then he paid people more than they had earned. God sent his son in just such an act of radical generosity. He gave his very self, sending Jesus to earth to fulfill the equation that justice required. And in his act of radical generosity, he supplied us with a way to climb up and stand in his presence. So don't you think that we should respond by being generous? If God has given you something that can benefit someone else, try giving it away. And then when you've tried that, go back and find someone else who could use it and do it again. And you'll find that living that way frees you. And it allows you to be an ambassador of the one who has no limits. And it lets you be a part of what the message paraphrase translates as the great reversal. Jesus finished his parable with these words, the last will be first and the first will be last. It's simple. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Life isn't fair, aren't you glad? And we too must be generous, so let's not wait another minute.